When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. On the pod today, we have the Atlantic's Julia Yaffe. We'll talk about her brand new piece on Vladimir Putin called Putin's Game. And later, we'll talk to the host of Crooked Media's Pod Save the People, DeRay McKesson. We're going on tour. Grab tickets for our 2018 stops at crooked.com slash events. That's exciting. Yeah, it is. Love yeah. It. You, I feel like you were about to say something funny. <laughs> Nothing. It was something about your tone that struck me. My tone. It's very chipper. Everyone's in it a good It was a mood. sales vibe that I didn't hate. <laughs> Speaking of sales vibes, love it or leave it on Friday. We had an awesome It was sh- the last Friday. We're promoting. Yeah. I know how it works, John. Uh, we had an Check awesome show Check with. Check the tape, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, Andy Daly, Jenny Yang, and Emily Heller. It was a really funny episode. Very loose. We had a good time. Emily Heller's rant about the fake sign language interpreter toward the end of the show made me laugh so hard. It was so funny. It was a great episode. And then this Friday, it's the Love It or Leave It last episode of the year, Holiday Spectacular. Oh, my God. You guys may be enlisted because you'll be there. Cool. I can't wait. That's going to be fun. <laughs> cool. A lot of guests. <laughs> Let's really brainstorm some, some, We're gonna do some fun stuff. offensive ideas. We're going to do some fun stuff. You know what's funnier? Some some contributors may stop by. Pod Save the World? My Pod Save the World. <laughs> <laughs> my Pod Save the World. Funny, funny title, Tommy. On Jerusalem. A Jerusalem went to Jared. Thank yeah. you, John. You're the only one who noticed. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a thoughtful conversation about why he made this uh, overtly political decision about a fraught diplomatic issue. And then the empty suit that is Rex Tillerson that just sort of wanders around the seventh floor of the State Department. Will he go? He's firing Won't people. he? Who will, um, be, who will replace him? Just expelling diplomats who've been there from forever. Politico. It's brilliant. brilliant Can I tell you, though, watching all the Jerusalem coverage mm-hmm. over the last sort of week and a half, I did was constantly struck by, like, were you guys all super happy with, like, the status quo? Like, how dare you violate the status quo in which things were terrible for half a century? I know. There's not a lot of good ideas in this in this debate. No. Maybe we can solve it here. I think Trump already did it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's talk about the news. Tomorrow. Voters in Alabama will choose their next senator in a special election to fill the seat held by Jeff Sessions. A win by Democrat Doug Jones would drastically increase the chances of the Democrats retake the Senate in 2018, which would allow them to effectively kill Donald Trump's legislative agenda, his ability to staff the government with whoever he wants, his ability to confirm whatever judges he wants, including the Supreme Court. John, stop. I can't. It's too exciting. Let's raise the stakes here, people. (laughs) A win by Jones could also jeopardize the Republican tax bill since Corker's a no and Collins is back on the fence after being snookered by Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. And I don't know if you saw, guys, but Marco Rubio says that if he doesn't get his way in the bill, there's going to be problems. Yeah, he's going to put out a... uh, He's going to... He's going to tweet out a Bible verse that's very stern about taxes. Uh, so anyway, Republicans know about the stakes. They understand this. And so Donald Trump, the Republican National Committee, and way too many elected Republicans are actively supporting alleged child molester Roy Moore, a twice-fired Supreme Court justice who believes homosexuality should be illegal, women shouldn't vote, Muslims shouldn't serve in Congress, and the Constitution would be better without every amendment after the 10th. There are some really good ones yeah. after the 10th. Yeah, of... you wanna, you're going to want to go back and look at those. There's some big ones. Yeah, there's an entire gender that would be written off from the voting booths. And a race. Race, gender, a couple other things. He, he was particularly upset about the direct election of U.S. senators, apparently. Yeah, I, I wonder why. <laughs> um, so anyway, we have a very close race. Polls have been all over the place. This has been extraordinarily difficult to poll. The Fox News poll out this morning that has Jones up 10. I don't think anyone believes that is correct. But who knows, guys? Nobody I mean, knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. There's this not is... been a competitive race down there. Yeah. It's been a long time. Like, I mean, what are you supposed to do? Like, how do you poll when it's an Alabama Senate seat, one of the people's an accused pedophile? Like, there's no yeah. there's no good way to crunch the numbers. Yeah, the sample size is just... The percentage of people who vote this weekend is going to be so low. But also, Roy Moore is just left the stage he apparently was in philadelphia this weekend at the army navy game that was a report i read this morning i mean he is 
as fully hidden from the press as you can possibly do when running for an election, including leaving the state. So why is this thing so close, guys? Why is it close? I know it's Alabama, but, you know, alleged child molester Roy Moore. What's going on? Anyone mm-hmm. see the anyone see the Vice Focus groups? Yes. Yeah. That was I watched that Friday night for some reason to really bring me down while I wasn't feeling well. I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't like the Vice Focus group. So Frank Luntz polls. Frank Luntz sits down a bunch of um, conservatives. They call themselves conservatives, more supporters. So it's not like it's you know a group of undecided voters. Uh, but he wanted to know why they liked Roy Moore so much, and the response is a little depressing. Yeah. The. It's just so cynical. It was fascinating to watch. It was an interesting insight into a certain kind of voter who we see, you know, the the people that are diehards for Trump. These are people that are diehards for more. These are people that are choosing and then adopting the propaganda that comes at them via Breitbart and Fox News. And it's a good reminder that those people are out there. However, I was trying to remind myself as I watched these people to assemble and try to make an argument based on what they'd been seeing and hearing that... This is a self-selecting group of people, and that if in the days before this election you're raising your hand and said, I'm a proud Roy Moore supporter, and I'd love to go on television to talk about it, you're not the coolest person in the room. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, you, you combine those people with the rant that uh, Judge Jean Pirro gave uh, that we'll talk about later, and you get the scariest possible scenario for fascism. Right. Yeah. I mean, there was a few people in that group who excused the assault allegations, but I think there were far more people, and this is telling, that simply said they didn't believe them, that they were yeah. made up. The George Soros paid for this, paid these women, thing kind of came up. So it's like a lot of people are saying, like, how could these people in Alabama vote for an alleged child molester? And the answer is they don't believe they're doing that. Or they don't want to believe it. Or they don't want to believe it. And, and that desire to not want to believe that is being reinforced by Fox and Breitbart yeah. and the president of the United States. Nobody wants to be told they're wrong. And, and I think the right-wing media and the Moore campaign and Donald Trump have – fomented the idea that this is a Washington elites pushing their culture and their values down your throat and don't believe them because you're buying into their their bullshit. And, yeah. it, you know, it's undercutting like the very belief in truth in our country. <laughs> yes, which is a, a bigger problem, which we should talk about soon. In better news this weekend, Alabama's other senator, Republican Richard Shelby, no liberal, no, nope. <laughs> um, who rarely goes on the Sunday shows, told Jake Tapper on Sunday that he couldn't vote for Roy Moore and wrote in another Republican. What do you guys think of this? It's a big deal and a big message to Republicans out there that it's okay to not vote for Roy Moore. I think getting people to vote for someone is significantly harder and might be a bridge too far if, say, you're staunchly pro-life. But getting them to write in Nick Saban, which is what one of the super PACs is doing as, you know, essentially a way to pull votes away from Roy Moore is smart. I think it's great when people decide to vote for someone named Nick Saban. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I hope people write in that. Richard Elijah lies, laughing in the back. I just think here. I just think that uh, Nick Saban is the perfect kind of person, clearly from the sports world, that many people <laughs> could write in. No, I thought it was actually, you know, look, Richard Shelby did not have to do that. He clearly made a choice. He clearly said, I want to go on a Sunday show. I want to create video that can spread around Alabama and, mm-hmm. and send a signal to Republican voters not to vote for this guy. So, you know, good for him. <sighs> good just... for him. And it's harder to do than some of these other Republican senators. Like, you know, it's awesome that Jeff Flake donated to Doug Jones, but Jeff Flake's in Arizona and never and retiring. Yeah, and yeah. retiring. And Richard Shelby, who also, I mean, he's 83. I don't know if he's going to run again either. But presumably... He looks good for 83. Yeah, he does. Although maybe it's just that we're all we're grading senators on a curve because we're governed by... Uh, the Orrin Hatch uh, principle. The, the, the uh, McDonald's uh, bag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's a McDonald's bag? <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. But I just, but I just mean more. The, the Senate is filled with septuagenarians and octogenarians, yeah. and we're just used to it. I just Alabama, like we don't ask you for a lot, right. you know. <laughs> like can we just talk for a minute. Like the first wedding I ever went to was Alabama. I had a great time. Oh. My favorite musicians from Alabama, a guy named Jason Isbell, wonderful artist. Thank you for that. He's Thank been you tweeting for doing about this for me. Can you guys just do us one solid and not send a pedophile to Congress. We really would appreciate it if we could just get this one. Maybe it could be as a, in return for, well, you know what? We already get Alabama back because they vote conservative Republicans into the Senate and the House year after year and then have a net positive from the federal government over and over again as we fund (laughs) Medicaid and Medicare and Social Security, even though they don't pay as much in taxes. So, hey, but hey, guys. Hey, it's it's us here in the rest of the country. We're we're asking for yeah. our, we're asking we'll, for uh, a solid. We'll leave that one out of the robocall. I went with, I went with uh, <laughs> I went with the flies from Honey Approach. Yeah, love yeah, it, love yeah. it. Uh, just whacking them. So, you know, 
Tough we'll love. see which works. Tough Hopefully love. Works. Stick and carrot, Tommy. Stick and carrot. <laughs> okay, so what will it take for Jones to win? Obviously, Alabama's tough. He has to win more votes, John. Yeah, exactly. There you go. That's our, This is our trench. <laughs> Some people have, like, data people. Like, you get yeah. Steve Kornacki up there yeah. and John King crunching yeah. numbers. We got lots of <laughs> more votes, John. Data is out. Data is out. Love. Gut instinct and propaganda love is like, in. Pipe down, Chuck Todd. I got this. Here we go. <laughs> Vote for Doug Jones. <laughs> so Republicans win statewide by margins of 10 to 20 points. Just so everyone knows how hard this mm-hmm. is. Only about a quarter of the entire population has college degrees, which is higher than only six other states. And we know that these days with Trump as president, and this has been a trend that's been happening for some time, white voters without a college degree are voting Republican in historic margins no matter what. Yeah. So incredibly difficult. Also, just but- don't leave out Voter suppression. Voter suppression is yes, a big problem down there. Which is a huge problem. Special election turnout, no way to model who so turns well. out in a special election. Um, and so for Jones, it comes down to the African-American vote. African-Americans make up 27% of the state's population. Doug Jones needs the black vote to account for at least 25% of the electorate. Then he could lose the white vote by 51 to 36 if he bumps it up to 26%, 27%, he can lose by even more. And then you would need more to underperform in the northern part of the state, which he's done in the past. And you basically still have to have some suburban professionals around Birmingham, Tuscaloosa, places like that, who might be Trump supporters to say, I'm not, either stay home or vote for Doug Jones. That's what you need. That's the recipe. Okay. So we'll so we'll What do we see. do with that information? It's just for everyone to, you know... As you're looking at the returns come well, in tomorrow night, that's been, what you're looking for. It's been interesting to see how Jones's campaign is approaching this because they've had a number of, of prominent African American surrogates come into the state. Cory Booker was there. There's reports that President Obama has recorded a robocall, but they're not sure if they're going to use it yet. So it doesn't seem like they've gone all in on an African American turnout strategy. It's still something they're trying to do in a way that doesn't, you know, tie them to Washington or tie them to Obama further right. than they already are. Which is, I don't know. I've not seen any numbers, so I don't know what I would do in their case, but it seems like if you're hinging the whole thing on African-American turnout, I might push all those chips in the table and say, hey, let's do a big event. Let's get Obama doing TV ads, whatever it might be. I had the same thought, and I know people are like, oh, if he went down there, that would be it. Um, and, you know, Doug Jones would lose and it would hurt him. But, you know, Doug Jones is running a strategy that is not that is unlike many Democrats mm-hmm. in the South over the last several years. He's not running as a conservative Democrat. No. He's running as a as who he is, a liberal Democrat, or at least a mainstream Democrat, and he's banking on it is it's African American vote or nothing. Here. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I just I But I don't know enough. I don't know enough and I don't think a lot of people make observing from outside know enough. The truth is nobody knows. We we haven't seen a competitive Alabama race. We don't know the impact of Barack Obama nationalizing the race, whether the turnout you'd see increase amongst the African amongst the African American community would outweigh the nationalization of the race and the reminding of Republicans the Senate stakes, which is, you know, all the people saying they don't believe in more, they believe in more, all of it boils down to a desire to want to have permission to vote on party lines, right? The, 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 to, be, to be told it's okay to care about holding the Senate more than voting for a pedophile. Right. Alleged. All right. Pedophile. So we'll see what happens. No predictions here from Pod Save America. We don't do predictions anymore. <laughs> Not <laughs> when the we, mics are on. Well, why don't we just record two predictions, then we'll edit it later. Excellent idea. Um, well, we'd have to just switch it out tomorrow. Yeah. Okay, cut this part. <laughs> just kidding. Leave it in. Okay, I want to talk about the press. So, specifically, this is the story that I want to talk about, which is the systemic effort by Donald Trump and his state-run media to delegitimize the free press, which they did this weekend by harping on three mistakes on the Russia investigation made by three different outlets that were all corrected within hours This weekend, Trump also called for Washington Post reporter Dave Weigel to be fired for putting up a picture of the wrong crowd size at his rally, a picture he immediately took down when corrected. Of course, this was the same rally where Donald Trump told people to vote for an alleged child molester who doesn't like any of the constitutional amendments after the Bill of Rights. This is so frustrating. (laughs) Like, I'm glad we're having this conversation, but the fact that this is a national conversation means that Donald Trump has already won. We've already gotten sucked into this bizarre... we should say it's not a national conversation. It's a conversation among the D.C. press and us and all these people who pay attention to it. I think it's a conversation on Fox News and everywhere in the right wing. So I do think it's a national conversation. And he's already won it because we are in a frame where we're demanding more accountability from reporters than we demand from the President of the United States. Because... 
he told the biggest crowd size lie in history, and he still maintains that it's true. He says that millions of people voted illegally for Hillary Clinton or that Barack Obama wiretapped him, something I think he said again over the weekend. But Dave Weigel, who's a great reporter at The Washington Post, made a mistake, corrected it, and apologized. And we play into this farce like it's a real debate, like his attacks on Dave are legitimate, um, when in fact the guy is just using it as a political wedge. It's it's a strategy. It's not actually a a conversation about fact or fiction. That is the best point, and that is what has been lost in all this. It's not that, like... It's not hypocrisy. Brian Boitler's made this point in some of his pieces on Crooked.com, too. It's not like... Oh, you know, Trump lies all the time and and he doesn't get caught and Fox News lies all the time and we don't yell at them and it only happens when the mainstream media does it. It's not about that. This is a strategy by Donald Trump and his press to destroy the media. Okay, this is editor of Breitbart, Matt Boyle, said the following in July of this year in public. The goal eventually is the full destruction and elimination of the entire mainstream media. We envision a day where CNN is no longer in business. We envision a day where the New York Times closes its doors. I think that day is possible. And then he wiped the drool off his chin. But it's like, (laughs) this is what they're doing. And then you have, and I read this in Axios, I read this, CNN did this, Brian Stelter did it, and New York Times. Tons of mainstream uh, media sources are having these like, introspective hand-wringing conversations what are we to do did we just fuel you know donald trump's strategy and help him out blah 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 mm-hmm. we're do and it's like i'm so glad that they're all concerned about getting things right and they're going to slow down and take their time they absolutely should do that these are important things but you know what like as long as reporters are fucking human beings they're going to make mistakes and guess what if reporters were perfect and all these outlets were perfect do you think donald trump would just back off and fox news would close its doors and say oh we're fine now we're not going to attack you anymore it's you win the mainstream of course not it's like the mainstream media is a restaurant and it's like a fine restaurant and every morning, Fox News and Breitbart and Donald Trump and Kellyanne Conway and like the alt-right, they run up to that restaurant and they spray, this place is filled with rats. <laughs> they spray paint it on the wall. And the restaurant has no rats. But the other day, they did serve a piece of undercooked chicken to somebody who was there. And then, you know, they, they immediately realized the mistake. They pulled it back. No one got sick. And then the owner of the restaurant is like, I can't believe it. We... We've given, we've we've aided the people that say we're filled with rats. And meanwhile, meanwhile, they're outside and they're actually now like throwing things through the window. Yeah. And it's like, you know no. what? My undercooked chicken mistake, which I corrected instantly, is just fueling these attacks on us. No, and then Bright, and then Breitbart's out front, hucking Chick Fil A at people like Will Ferrell and Elf, right? And like, just, here we are, just poison. To that. Do you think I don't know if this you, analogy worked very do you well, think, do you but think, I liked it. Do you think the few times that Fox News has corrected their mistakes? They have long panel discussions all week. How are we to regain the trust of the Fox News well, viewer? It just, what will happen to our Fox News viewers? Will they believe us anymore? These people believe them no matter fucking what. And they will believe that the mainstream media is a joke no matter how perfect they are. That's not the fucking problem. Also, it's just, you know, it is important to get things right. You are not getting things right to try to make Sean Hannity and Donald Trump like you. They're not doing this. It doesn't fuel they don't anything. Care that it doesn't not, help them. They're they don't care regardless. if you're honest or not. That's not why they do what they do. They don't care about the truth. They're liars. And so we've built the system now where lies on Breitbart don't count. Lies on Hannity don't count. Lies on Fox and Friends don't count. Kellyanne Conway's lies don't count. Those are the lies that don't count. The only lies that matter or the only mistakes that matter are the mistakes made by people who care about the truth. Yeah. And that is no standard. And, and meanwhile, the mainstream media, I think rightly, is covering the rise of all these sort of like right-wing apparatuses. Like they're covering Steve Bannon constantly, like he's Svengali, like my views on that are well known. But they did a piece <laughs> on Project Veritas, which is James O'Keefe running around setting up pseudo sting operations, where essentially he just records people offering their views in offhand ways and selectively edits them in, in a deeply dishonest fashion to like sell this narrative. But but the mainstream media is getting savaged and they're not standing up for their own reporters like Dave Weigel, who made an honest mistake and corrected it. And then they're sort of like looking at this right wing apparatus that's set up to destroy them like it's a it's a zoo animal. And this they're is just kind right. of observing this it from afar. Right. This, yeah. this is often like too They're coming for you guys. This is the problem Do I think something. with the Times. <laughs> this is also the problem with the Times that you like – when they print people like Eric Erickson in their op-ed pages as if that pay-on to a certain segment of the right wing is going to win them plaudits or sort of win them support or demonstrate that they care about an ideologically broad perspective. Like, are you up for this fight? Because, like, they're not coming for you because there aren't enough conservatives on the op-ed page. They're coming for you because it's about power. Right. Like, this is about power. And you need to stand up for yourselves, not as some institute. Like, you're not observing the alt-right. 
You're not observing them. You're in a fight with them. They want to beat you and they're going to try to destroy you. You getting them right on your pages doesn't matter. Also, you report stories. And one of the biggest stories of our time is the fact that the president and his propaganda machine are trying to destroy and delegitimize the free press. That is a story. And you have to expose the bad faith motives behind their actions. Mm -hmm. Like, not because you're in a war, not because, you know, liberal partisans want you to bring down the president, because that's one of the biggest stories of our time. And your reporters and your job is to report on that. And doing so will necessarily be adversarial because you're trying to expose the lies that are covering up their strategy and their wrongdoing. That's the whole point of it. It is. It's like, you know, you didn't make this happen, but you're the story. Like, your place in this is part of the story. And that's just the reality. Yeah. And I think the person who responded best of all to this this weekend was Dave Weigel. Yes. Who, I, I saw Brian Stelter tweet last night, oh, I reached out to Weigel for another comment, but he's busy covering the race in Alabama. Like, he didn't make it about him. He didn't have this <laughs> big thing. He just kept tweeting about Alabama and then, like, moved on with his he life. Said, you know, and he said the worst thing that happened to this weekend was that Delta lost his luggage. And so I get that. <laughs> and I get that. Yeah. I mean, right. I do think the, the Brian Ross case, like, Brian's a good reporter. I've worked with him many times. But he's made a number of very high-profile mistakes over time that have probably led to the suspension for a month. Weigel tweeted a photo and he deleted it. And it's not a big deal. And let's stop pretending it is. I think CNN would have probably been better served if their team, if Manu Raju and the guys who screwed up the story about Donald Trump Jr.'s email had more thoroughly corrected it in the way Weigel did and just said we screwed up. Like I think sometimes media outlets circle the wagons and they get defensive and yeah, it, it, it doesn't serve them well over time. But more broadly, like Donald Trump's strategy of never, ever admitting you lie, never saying you're sorry works in this media day and age. The minute you show any contrition, you get savaged. And also, by, by the way, on top of all this, like, it's hard to be accurate as like these are journalist institutions that are doing their best to be accurate. It's tough to get things right. It's especially hard when every source you have is a fucking liar. Like they are <laughs> yeah. dealing with the most obstinate, deceptive, malicious White House and yeah. governing apparatus we have had in our country in our lifetimes. Remember when so they that's about tough. It? Yes. And so it's like this is, you know, I'm no fan of George W. Bush. I think Richard Nixon made some big mistakes, but even these people pale in comparison to the dissembling and lying and viciousness of the current administration. I mean, Sarah Huckabee, she lies from the podium every single day. So it's tough. Figuring out what's going on is tough. They're going to make mistakes. Also, a Fox News host this weekend (laughs) called for the arrest by Donald Trump of Department of Justice officials and FBI officials for for investigating (laughs) Donald Trump, whose four associates have already been charged with felonies. That happened this weekend on a pretty major network. And it speaks to, and it's actually connected to this, right? The idea that, that oh, you're, you're, the, the assault on the institutions in the press is similar to, oh, look, there are Democrats or there are people with political views that differ from Donald Trump inside the FBI, uh, inside the Justice Department, which there always have been because it's the United States and people are allowed to have political views in their private lives. These people must be purged. These people must be ferreted out. They can't handle the responsibility of investigating the president. The implications of that are incredible. Yeah. Only Republicans can investigate the White House. Only people with well, no political is, views. We have, right, not to mention, right, of course, Bob but Mueller. but the standard they're suggesting so cavalierly, right? So just glibly out of an, out of a desire to protect the president is people can't have personal views and then do their jobs professionally, mm-hmm. which has never been a standard and is not possible to uphold unless you want to literally do a purge. Yeah, it's manufactured. I mean, but let's just dig into this for a second. Like Judge Jean Perot is not just a Fox News host. She's essentially a Trump advisor. She's right. someone who gets an audience with him for like hours at a time where she <laughs> rants about how she said publicly on her show that the FBI and DOJ needed to be cleansed, to use the word cleansed, of individuals like the deputy director of the FBI like she's called for Mueller to go. I mean, these are apparently these views are so crazy that Donald Trump got bored and walked out of the room, which says something. that says a lot, says an awful lot. But they, like, it's more dangerous than just a lunatic ranting on Fox. Yeah, he's like, you want a story about media malfeasance? There's your fucking story. Yeah. Why isn't she has a pretty big audience? There's a couple million people who saw that. Why don't we talk about that? And also, and also, just the kind of the respectable conservatives on Twitter who are like, CNN made a mistake. When will these people learn that they're adding fuel to the fire? This is, oh, this is the problem. Can't trust. As if they won't make mistakes in the future by thinking to themselves like, oh, we're just going to be adding fuel to the fire if we accidentally get this wrong. But but it it speaks to a fundamental (laughs) blind spot, which is 
these same, so you know, the serious conservatives, the, the reasonable ones, the ones that don't like Fox News, they don't watch it. They try to ignore it. It makes them feel bad. They don't address it. Right. Like there, there is no equivalent to what Janine Pirro and Sean Hannity and Fox and Friends are doing. And they never get the same level of criticism from the yeah. people who claim that they're just out there trying to figure out the truth. No, because they think they're, they're crazy, the crazy people in our party who we don't agree with. Right. They're just on TV. We're quietly taking them. over. Yeah, that's how they... That's Why how these would they na- care? The National Review Weekly Standard <laughs> crowd or any of the sensible... That's how they see the Fox News people. Oh, they're crazy, but like, whatever. Yeah. Not that they have this huge audience of people that they're, you know... It's again, it's like, because it's this strange sort of like paradox of... Oh, Fox News and those guys assaulting the mainstream media don't matter because we have a mainstream media. Yeah. Like because we have a media under assault that's doing a pretty good job, even though we point out its sins with with far greater frequency than we do on our own side. It's OK because of it. Yeah. It's like, don't you see what the end result of this is? If you don't point it at your own side, we're going to run out of the good guys. Anyway, the story is not the media's mistakes. The story <laughs> is that powerful people are trying to destroy the media, whether it makes makes mistakes or not. <laughs> Speaking of good stories, let's talk about the New York Times story. <laughs> this is a little, a little dessert at the end. Yeah. So, like, does Maggie Mahaberman have like a, a sleeping bag, and she's like, this, rolls over to to the White House and stays there for a couple weeks to get is, these? And she's calling through the vents. Yeah. She's like got sixty sources in the piece. So this is a New York Times story she over the pops weekend. Up in a little vent in the Lincoln Brand. It's like, hey, can I just ask you a couple things? All right, sorry, continue. So, uh, the story's called Trump's hour by hour battle for self preservation. A New York Times story. This story has it all. <laughs> Trump hate watching four to eight hours of devoted cable news every day, which he tweeted about this morning in the midst of a terror attack. That was, that was what was on his mind. Someone might have bombed the subway in New York City, and he tweeted that he doesn't watch that much TV. Also, okay, I saw that uh, Ashley Feinberg uh, matched up the timestamp of his tweet with a Morning Joe segment about how he was watching so much TV. I mean, so he was tweeting about not watching TV while watching TV. He he, he, he live <laughs> tweets Fox and Friends. Like, it's not hard to figure out. Drinks 12 Diet Cokes a day. Love it. I feel like you have some special (laughs) as a DC drinker yourself. As you guys know, love Diet Coke. (laughs) 12 Diet Cokes a day is so much. That's 500 milligrams of caffeine. If he is having that many at night, like, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say a substantial part of our current national crisis is fueled by someone who is exhausted, drinking caffeine to stay awake, Waking up after four and a half hours of sleep because there's still caffeine flowing through his bloodstream and then caffeinating all over again Mm -hmm. and repeating the vicious cycle. Like if John Kelly, part of the Committee to Save America, should go into that fridge and quietly replace some of the caffeinated Diet Cokes with caffeine-free Diet Coke. And then after 6 p.m., give him caffeine-free Diet Coke. All of a sudden, it's 9, 30, 10 o'clock. He's tuckered out. He's falling asleep. Now he's getting six hours. Now he's getting seven hours. He's waking up a little more refreshed. Maybe he's got a little more spring in his step. Maybe he can follow a fucking thought. Love it. I mean, how many times do you think he has to pee during the day? 12 12 Diet Cokes? And I've been there all day. I I also don't think it's meeting you're missing. There's a television on the bathroom wall, too, and he's just... (laughs) Well, I also just... I don't think he's alternating with water. You know what I mean? Like, I think that he's just a straight-up... I hydrate with Diet Coke. So also the dinners with the the turrets of gravy. <laughs> He's so unhealthy. Sitting there like a fucking. He is, a, is he holding a turkey leg too? <laughs> he is, <laughs> know, He's like at medieval times every <laughs> night. <laughs> Imagine like this big. Mike Pence is on a yeah, horse this, in front of him. This, this bib and. <laughs> He's just turrets of gravy. The big. He's got a remote in one hand and the, gra- the gravy. Just leg a, in the a, tur- other. a turkey. He's <laughs> the remote and the He's gravy. T- sometimes he's taking accident. a turkey leg, scooping up some chocolate cake, eating it off the turkey leg. He's like. Twelve Diet Cokes, a burnt steak, mashed potatoes with gravy, two pieces of dessert a la mode. Screaming about Don Lemon. Sque- just his <laughs> like, just like, how did I get here? He is so unhealthy. Two things that don't appear in that story. An elliptical and time with his family. <laughs> um, it's also got him tweeting against the advice of every advisor and lawyer he has. They're all telling him not to tweet things, and he's just like, oh, I don't care. So they're doing a great job there. It has him needing verbal briefings because he doesn't read. <laughs> he just doesn't like reading. He doesn't like reading that my, much. But my favorite is when he learned that the New York Times was writing this piece about his four hours of television time a day. He went back to the press cabin on Air Force One and talked about how he was so busy reading documents. He just kept referring to them as documents. What I love that I don't I watch love, TV because of the documents. I love, go, I love though, that just sort of little like, oh, like 
it's a, it's like a, almost like a time machine. Like, oh, I remember when he did that. He got angry about look. It wasn't connected to any yeah. specific allegation. It turns out he received an inquiry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a fact check about this article. And he, and like, this is such a funny thing. It's the uncertainty principle. Like, <laughs> like Donald Trump is changed when Maggie Haberman observes him. <laughs> I mean, so obviously we could be laughing or crying about all this. I, I actually, <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say though, it, like it was. Um, I feel like it was uh, not more crazy than what we've seen in the past. Like, I didn't find it to yeah. be... There could be a version of that article that made it seem like he was in some kind of rapid and deeply terrifying descent. But I found it, in this horrible reality of ours, heartening to see that the status quo ante of where he was on January 21st continues, which is watching four hours of television a day and having no sense of the importance of his own job. I laugh because it's all I got. Yeah. But the thing that really scared me was every single one of his advisors told the New York Times that he has trouble sorting out fact from fiction. And you couple that with like some of the batshit crazy people that he has in his White House. Like Mike Flynn famously told the Defense Intelligence Agency that Iran was behind the Benghazi attacks and go prove it and make it so. So if you have people like selling shit like that to him in a time of crisis, that gets unbelievably scary. Yeah, partly because, you know, Maggie and, and they're great writers. They like painted this picture of, you know, kooky president comes to Washington and remains kooky, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But when you step back and think about the consequences of, again, you know, we may be in the best part of the Trump presidency. Yeah. And you think about the threats from North Korea and what's going on all over the world. And you're like, this kind of behavior at the wrong moment, making a certain decision could be catastrophic. And also, I thought the, mo- I thought the most interesting thing in the piece, and Maggie tweeted this out, was she wrote at one point, there's seldom a plan apart from preemption, self-defense, obsession, and impulse. So this whole like, is he trying to distract us from something else? Is this a strategy to do this? Mm-hmm. There is no strategy here. There's only like, how do I get through, like the headline of the piece, hour by hour, but battle see, for self-preservation. But to me, so I think you're right, right? So we should be obviously at all times terrified because <laughs> events are coming. The world is coming. There will be a crisis and then this person will be in this job. But what the sense I get when I read these articles about what Trump is doing is it's not that he's misusing the presidency. It's that he's not doing the presidency. He has abdicated the presidency. I feel like every president spends a year being told what to do by the White House, being sort of battered and, and buffeted by the job itself. And then over time, and there's no way to teach you this. You learn right? how to control they them. Learn how, yeah. You learn how to be president. Every president does that. And they all describe the mistakes they made. And they all they all come down to, oh, I forgot I was president. And I decide what this job is. And you read this article and you see that, oh, this is a person who can't learn, who can't adapt. He has stepped into this role. He is unable to perform the functions. And what that means is there's no control. There's nothing happening. We just don't really have a president. Right. We have a tweeter. A competent president, a competent administration could have done like 50% more damage. Absolutely. I guess that's heartening. He doesn't see the presidency as a job. He sees it as a role that he's starring in. It's a prize. That he must get accolades for. Right. So that's how he's treating. He's not treating it as a job to perform. So funny him like reading the news and just not seeing himself for a couple of days and being just like, what controversy should I ignite? Because I'm which tracks with what's happening. You know, it's interesting. There are there are days when he falls out of the news once in a while. And then he's on the center and then all of a sudden Kaepernick or what jumps back in and you think, did something bad happen? Did he hear about something with Mueller? That's maybe not the case. Maybe just what happened is he's like, I'm pretty bored. I want to get back. Yeah, it's it's, uh, (laughs) that's right. We always think like, oh, he must be afraid of some story that's coming. It just turns out that Donald Trump wants to be in the news every few days, and every few days there's an administrative defining scandal. <laughs> right. And we seem we connect them, but he doesn't. He doesn't. No, the synapses aren't firing. Okay. When we come back, we will talk to the Atlantic's Julio Yaffe. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Here, our waters are splashing and rejuvenating. Our history is for seeing and experiencing. Our theme parks are for riding and sometimes flying. And our great outdoors are yours for exploring and restoring. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Mm -hmm. More time for you. I uh. 
you know, because we've been doing what a weekday, mm-hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I, I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So uh, what do you spend time doing in therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I okay, added therapy good, back good. to good. another time because uh, it turns out talking that's about... going to make the jokes better. <laughs> well, it's really going to make things better for the team. <laughs> If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash PSA. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. On the show today, we have friend of the pod, Atlantic's Julia Yaffe, who wrote a, has a new piece in the Atlantic called Putin's Game. Julia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Hi. Uh, hi. <laughs> Hello to you. That's my chipper radio voice. That's, That's a great, great chipper g- radio. Very good chipper radio voice. <laughs> okay, so the thrust of your piece is Vladimir Putin is not playing, you know, 3D chess. He's gambling. He's playing blackjack. Can you explain what that means and, and the sort of broader point you're trying to make with that comparison? Sure. So we like to think of Vladimir Putin, or we've come to think of him here in the U.S., especially in the last year, as this kind of villainous mastermind, something out of James Bond, as somebody who has a grand strategic vision that is very detailed and that he is able to carry out and execute. But a more accurate description of how he operates is that he has kind of a long-term goal, which is to create friction for America in the world stage. And to maybe get back at America for what he sees as regime change uh, via the color revolutions in former Soviet republics and in the Middle East Mm -hmm. and things like the Arab Spring, which he blames the CIA for. And then he'll do kind of like the first and second step and the rest he'll figure out as he goes along. So he kind of acts very emotionally. There's a lot of kind of knee jerk last minute decision making that he does. And he doesn't really think about the consequences at the in the moment. He kind mm-hmm. of, it's kind of a you know we'll cross that bridge when we get there if we get there. Right. And as a result, a lot of these actions that we describe as wow, he's totally running circles around us in Ukraine and Crimea or in Syria or with our elections in 2016. But these things end up coming back and biting him in the derriere. Yeah, you can say ass here. I can say ass. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. absolutely. Ass, ass, ass. Um, <laughs> so your piece is really smart and it's incredibly well reported and everyone should go read it. And I think it gets at something that's bothered a lot of people who've been watching the response to the election hacking unfold over the last year, which is like, unfortunately, we're in a place now where, where you know, every Russia connection is held up as some huge deal. Too much is being ascribed to Putin. But there's also the other reality that like you can do great harm and and cause damage without a broader strategic plan. How do you sort of like hold up both of those thoughts in your head at the same time if you're the U.S. government and figure out a response that might be able to deter them from these kinds of activities? Well, so I I think the problem, unfortunately, is in part in how the media has been covering it and television media has been covering it, that every new email that's found or every new link to a Russian or meeting is held up as this kind of smoking gun with this kind of tacit implication that Trump is going to step down tomorrow and Mm -hmm. he's not going to. He's stuck with us as long as we have this Republican Party. We're stuck with him for the next, I don't know, three years. Too many. We're not counting. counting. (laughs) Um, And as opposed to looking at this as a national security issue and as a broader political issue, the fact that the Russians were able to get the kind of result they got with not a lot of sophisticated stuff and not a lot of strategic operative genius it says is a kind of an indictment of our political culture of our media literacy of the you know of all the things that we created that the Russians didn't create so we have to look at ourselves and think about the fact that 
the Russians didn't create Donald Trump. The Russians didn't create Fox News. They didn't create Breitbart. They didn't create Infowars. They didn't create an incredibly polarized discourse. They certainly didn't create the first, you know, the racist backlash to the first black president. They didn't create the Electoral College. A lot of this stuff was there. They just kind of exploited what we gave them. So we have to think about that. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is we have to think about this as a national security issue and as a cybersecurity issue. But unfortunately, under this uh, administration, in part because this president feels so warmly toward Vladimir Putin and other strongmen, and in part because he is stubborn and under so much pressure when it comes to Russia that he has not and his administration has not given the green light to our cybersecurity counterintelligence forces that we have in our intelligence community. They're kind of just sitting idly by and waiting for a signal to counterattack, to defend America. And there's no signal. So there's no command to go. And that's also a problem. Yeah. Um, and you just made this point. One of the um, things that Michael Hayden said to you, I think, in the piece was covert influence operations don't create divisions on the ground. They amplify them. I sometimes wonder if, you know, we have a hard time wrapping our heads around what happened to us in 2016 because it is difficult for us to admit to ourselves that propaganda works on us. Like, it's one thing if Russia hacked our election machines, but if you hack people's minds, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's sort of a trickier thing to both admit and then guard against. But I wonder, like, I don't know, it feels like the Russians have had a uh, quite a long history with the uses of propaganda. Like, what are some of the ways that societies could prevent against, you know, a, pro a, a propaganda attack from a foreign actor uh, as we look ahead to 2018 and 2020? So I, I just want to push back on the premise of that a little bit, mm -hmm. which is I agree with you that I think it's hard for us to wrap our heads around what happened in 2016. But I, I would say the vast majority of the propaganda the American voter was subject to in 2016 was American-made. Oh, yeah. Oh, pro more so than Russia. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's much easier for us to blame somebody else. I think mm -hmm. it's a basic human trait really embodied by this president that you it's never your fault. It's always somebody else, else's fault. It's not that you lost the popular vote by 3 million votes. It's that there was a shady plot of illegal immigrants voting against you. Right. So I, I and we see it everywhere. And in, to me, it's very Russian. It's a very Putin-esque response. This was how the Russian government dealt with very organic grassroots pro-democracy protests in 2011 and 2012. They blamed the Americans. They blamed the State Department, the CIA. And, you know, I've been kind of experiencing deja vu here because what I saw then in 2012 and then again in 2014 when Russia invaded Ukraine and there was this jingoistic craziness was that any Russian who had any connection to an American, an American friend, if this Russian ever studied in America or visited in America, this was automatically suspect and this person was automatically a traitor to Russia because it's much easier to explain your failings uh, by blaming them on somebody else. And it's it's much, much sexier to live in this John le Carré novel. The conversations I have in hashtag this town in Washington, you know, about it's, it's so cloaks and daggers. And it's often people right. who are about my age who miss the Cold War and who really want to, you know, give it a go and experience that as opposed to thinking about really kind of vague, nebulous and unsexy things like Americans' media literacy or, you know, the effects of mechanization and globalization or campaign finance reform or the fact that we have institutionalized minority rule because of um, gerrymandering and the electoral college. These are very kind of big, hard to tackle, unsexy things, whereas this is very easy. There's a guy in a big chair stroking a bald cat, and his name is Vladimir Putin, and he's responsible. <laughs> no, I, I think that's exactly right. I guess the point I was trying to make is it seems like it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to guard against this in the future from a national security standpoint, because like whatever their capabilities are, all they need to do is like, 
you know, falsify one document or leak one email, and all the divisions <laughs> that are present within the United States are going to do the job for them. All it takes is one document, and then Jim Comey is sold on the whole thing. He that, was, well, he that's was what I'm thinking about. Yeah, I mean, like, well, that's pretty low tech. To, to your point, John, it's like, for me, it's like, I don't think the Russians are the reason Hillary Clinton lost, but I think the fact that, you know, despite all this evidence, a third of the country won't believe that they were involved, would somehow rather blame the Democratic Party than the Russians is, is probably more instructive than anything that happened before the election itself. Yeah, I, I mean, just the shift that's happened also, the fact that, you know, Democrats have become incredibly hawkish on Russia and Republicans, the party of Reagan, who called it, you know, the center of evil in the modern world, referred to Russia in that way, you know, are now buddy-buddy with Russia because, you know, Russia helped their guy win. So it's just such, it's been such a mind fuck, you know, I think yep. for everybody. See, I wouldn't say ass before, but now if you now you've now let me now loose. You've, you've right unleashed in. me. Yeah, indoctrinated. You sort of hinted this at the end that, you know, Putin has announced his re-election. Good luck, sir. In 2018... Who do you think is going to win? I'm just... I'm we'll, waiting with bated breath. I, we'll, we'll find out. But I mean, I think so many of our fears are wrapped up in this one little judo-loving man. The New York Times is a big piece on, you know, sort of how the secession uh, struggle for who comes after Putin is is happening concurrently with Putin's re-election. You know, ballpark it for us. Do you think things get worse? Do they get better? Are we more likely to see a continuation of Putin-like policies because that's the only way you can sort of maintain control of a country that's in decline in so many other ways? So this is one of the things I tried to get at in this piece is that Putin has propagated this vision to his citizens, which is Russia's always on the brink of collapse, and he's the only one standing between 144 million Russians and the abyss, and that if he were to go, everything would fall apart, and there would be bloodshed and chaos and economic decline. Unfortunately, by being in power for so long, by personalizing his rule for so long, he has assured that this is probably what will happen when he goes, because unfortunately, no man is immortal. And he will die one day, or he will be ousted one day. And a lot of the things that he has spent nearly 20 years scaring his countrymen about will happen because of how he ruled. The reason Russia is in decline is because of his policies, is because of the rampant corruption in Russia, because of the fact that civil society has been completely raised and leveled with the ground, because there's no political competition, because there's no competition of any sort in Russia. And because he he has spent the last 20 years feeding the Russian population really jingoistic and kind of violent nationalistic propaganda. So, you know, when he says kind of, you know, you'll miss me when I'm gone, he might be right. But he created that reality. He set Russia up for that kind of grim future. Mm -hmm. So the one theory of collusion that I would say m might be supported by your piece is this idea that, you know, if Russia really is more hapless than we have allowed ourselves to believe, and they don't have this extremely sophisticated strategy or understanding of the American political system and they sort of got lucky then and I know that you know Mark Warner's raised these questions and the, the Senate committees have raised this but you know the the targeting of sort of some of the fake news Facebook ad stuff seems to have been incredibly sophisticated and precise here in the United States. And so then the question is, well, like, yeah, if if Russia didn't know what they were doing and they just kind of got lucky, how did they know how to target all of these precincts? In which case, you know, the idea is maybe they had some help. What, what do you think so of that? Is I, that just crazy? Or? I don't think it's crazy, but I, I don't think we know the answer just yet. I think it's yeah. it's really hard to kind of stay in the moment and stay with what we know and the mm -hmm. facts we have, and not to run ahead. I think that the Russians have gotten tremendously more sophisticated when it comes to understanding our political process, but they're still not that sophisticated. That said, if you really wanted to target all these precincts and figure out where the battleground states and counties were, all you need is a computer, all of this stuff is out there on, you know, 538 and on Cook's political report and Sabato. You know, if you really get into the weeds of American political reporting, it's all there. You know, and and in this way, the Russians are a lot like, 
I like comparing them to the 9-11 terrorists. They used our system against us. You know, they used the openness of our system, the fact that we have a lot of information out there because this is not, you know, an authoritarian dictatorship. You can access this stuff and target things. You also have, you definitely had a willingness to collude from the Trump side. And you had on the far right, a definite affinity with the Russians, with this kind of white Christian nationalistic, uh, you know, global north versus the global south kind of streams of thought that dovetailed nicely. And even after the election, you see how and places like the Atlantic Council have done a great job documenting this, how the far right, like the alt-right Twitter sphere and Infowars, how they launder Russian disinformation and propaganda, how they take a meme that starts somewhere on the Russian internet or Russian official media, and then they launder it and make it their own. Case in point was when they said, you know, the hashtag Syria hoax, Mm -hmm. when there was that chemical weapons attack by the Syrian regime in April of uh, 2017. And it was in the Russian government's interest to defend Assad. And they said, no, it was a hoax. It was actually the rebels who gassed their own people to frame Assad's government. And you can, you can see the chain. You can see how Infowars and the alt-right and, and Richard Spencer and all those people just took it and ran with it. And it kind of goes both ways. They sit online. They sit on Twitter. They're on Facebook. The Russians are, I mean. And there's a lot of give and take. Sometimes the Russians are running with what the American Twitter sphere, the American internet produces, and sometimes they're trying to inject memes back into our discourse. Yeah. So it, that makes it hard to trace. Yeah, so basically they just have uh, better media literacy than we do. <laughs> cool. No, no, they just have, they have, so the reporting that's coming out of Russia is also really interesting, and this is kind of where Putin's work has really paid off, right? Like he completely, almost completely annihilated independent journalism in Russia. Yeah. But... The people who are left are, have done some amazing reporting, and what they've shown is this, you know, the famous troll factory that Adrian Chen wrote about in the New York Times Magazine a couple of years ago, that they had, you know, a bunch of people working in shifts for a year or longer than a year on Twitter, on Facebook, in comment sections all over the internet in the U.S. And what was interesting to me about that is these were college students at the University of St. Petersburg, which is, you know, the number two school in Russia. This is the, you know, Russia's second capital, very kind of, very westernized, very progressive, very European. They're college students. They were students in Middle East studies, linguistics, journalism. These were kind of the college elite. And these are people who are familiar with Western culture, who were using VPNs, the same VPNs they were they had used to you know watch Netflix and to watch all the American shows that we watch, they were then using the VPNs to attack us. And what mm-hmm. I thought was so interesting about that was, you know, this is the demographic that we in the West assume is the most naturally anti-Putin. That they're the ones who are always itching to go out into the streets and topple him. And here they are because they're making twice the monthly average monthly salary by just you know trolling people on Twitter doing Putin's dirty work. Yeah. Fascinating. So what I learned today was Putin, not as powerful as we make him out to be. Two, don't argue in the comments section because it's probably a Russian college kid. <laughs> Three, the Russians were colluding with 538. So Nate's over. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Enten, we're coming for you. <laughs> Mueller's calling. Yikes. Tough news for them. Tough news. Tough news. Uh, Julia, thank you for joining us. It's thank a, you for uh, keeping us all sane and sensible with this piece. Yeah, it's a really, really great piece. Congrats thank you, guys. Thank you reporting. so much. Okay, talk to you later. All right, bye. 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 a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit mcl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line. Ships registry the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. 
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. On the pod, we have with us the host of Pod Save the People, Dre McKesson. Dre, how are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. It's great to be here. Great to have you. DeRay, update. My romp him is here. I have it. It's a little snug on the fence about whether I'll ever uh, wear it publicly. Oh, just snug is how it's supposed to be. Is there another way to have a romp him? It's supposed to be like form fitting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk about it. <laughs> love it. Wear it on Love It or Leave It this week. I'm thinking about it. I'm have thinking about it. it. Have you guys seen him in it? No. 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 I haven't so been far, treated to that image yet. Yeah, so far, it's just been, been uh, me in the mirror. <laughs> I love it. Uh, love it. Send me a picture. Okay. DeRay, who's on the show this week? We have Tom Wheeler, the former uh, chair of the FCC, who who was the chair when that neutrality got passed, so that's dope. And then we have Sinead Burke, who is a disability rights activist. She is a little person, and I learned so much, so it's great. That's excellent. Cool. And I saw that you have a new effort that you launched in Florida for uh, voter registration. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so we're actually just helping out the incredible organizers who've been doing so much work down there. So they need about... 700,000 good signatures. You know, there are about 2 million people in Florida who can't vote, 6 million ex-felons across the country who can't vote, one in four black people in Florida can't vote, which is wild. So we worked with them to just, like, provide additional capacity. So they've been doing incredible work getting signatures. We helped them launch a mailing campaign, so we're mailing petitions to people across Florida so they can just mail the petition in. Uh, We also, you know, the organizers down there were at the Jay-Z concert, they were at the Lady Gaga concert getting signatures, and we helped them do that so they need these signatures by the end of january they're close and if you go to florida.ourstates.org you can help uh you can help either mail petitions to people uh, or you can sign a petition if you live in florida cool that's great great we'll tweet that out it's a very big deal and you know we just saw you know terry mcauliffe did this in in virginia successfully and you know re-enfranchised ex-felons and you know it makes a huge difference you, especially some of these people before the election what it meant to them that they were able to go vote was uh was inspiring so yeah hoping to see this yeah the challenge, you know with terry terry actually lost mcauliffe lost the structural way to do it so to this day the governor of virginia this is why it's a big deal that the democrat one still has to sign the order person by person to give ex-felons the right to vote back because they have not uh, been able to pass legislation to do it so Hopefully, we'll get a legislative fix or some structural fix in Virginia. Getting a structural fix in Florida would be huge because, again, it's only 6 million ex-felons in the country who can't vote. 2 million of them live in Florida. So it would be the single biggest reenfranchisement uh, that's on the table right now. Yeah. Hey, Dre, we had all been emailing about um, this video of Daniel Shaver, uh, who was shot by the police in, in one of one of the more chilling pieces of video I've ever seen in my life. He's he's clearly complying. He's on the ground. He's crying. He's begging for his life. And he's just executed by this cop who uh, will seem, seemingly see um, no penalty for his actions. Do you think this recent piece of video, this piece of evidence might wake people up? Or do you think it's going to get sort of added to the long list of horrifying videos of police misconduct? I think in many ways it's like a both and, right? I think for those of us who've been in the streets about this, we're like, we told you, right? Like that the police are violent. And we talk about the disproportionate impact on people of color Mm -hmm. because there is a disproportionate impact. But the truth also is that the police are killing white people. This is just one of the first videos that has become a national story. I hope that this helps white people see that that the issue of police violence is not like a fringe issue that doesn't impact them. Is that that guy like was... He, the only person who you had to fear in that video was the police officer. Yeah. Like he was, as you said, Tommy, I mean, he's like on his stomach, like he has no weapon. They let the girl go. Like 
he was not a threat to anybody. And if there are people who saw that video and can see themselves in that moment and realize like that could be them, their son, their brother, their nephew, their daughter, like that could be anybody. And like, we try to help people see that, like, this is not just an issue that impacts people of color. Like this is an issue that we need to address so that everybody's safe. And what's frightening about that video is that like people saw it, like the, the jury saw that video and still acquitted the officer. And like, that just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. What does that say to you? That to me is like the part that I think is the hardest to grapple with that, that people saw that video and agreed with the argument that this was self-defense agreed with the argument that this police officer shouldn't pay any kind of a price. And like, how do you attack that problem, which isn't about the police? It's about the way citizens in our society view the police and prosecutors in the criminal and, justice well, of system, course, right? But, like but, how they present but, the but, case. Right. But people saw that video and yeah. decided it was not something to punish. Yeah. I'd love to know what, what, what part of the video stuck out to you? Like, what was it about this video that made it like appalling in a way that it has risen to a national conversation? I mean, I wouldn't have known what the hell I was supposed to do. The instructions were confusing and contradictory and you the kid couldn't have been in a less threatening position with his hands down on the ground like i guess i would hope that in that situation when there's a a body camera on the cop when it's all being filmed that there would be such a massive disincentive to shoot someone in cold blood and execute them but that didn't stop this cop from doing it yeah i guess for me it was like and it's the same thing that always gets me in a lot of these videos that i've seen it's when the person is pleading, you know, with the police officer, or usually sometimes it's a, you know, a, a relative of the person or a friend of the person pleading with the police officer, don't shoot, he doesn't have a gun, you know, please, I'm not, I'm not here to shoot you, I don't have a gun. Like, this person clearly pleading for their life, clearly scared and terrified, and yet somehow we're meant to think that the police officer sees that as a threat? Yeah, no, it's, it is wild, and like, you know, people say that body cameras don't have an impact. And what's interesting about body cameras in, in the organizing community split on them is that there are almost no instances of a police officer ever being held accountable where there's not video. And the video is like one of the only things in this case, there was a video and the officer wasn't held accountable, but the video is like the only thing that has helped people see this, like as a real problem, because we, if I explained Daniel Shaver's death to you, like, people will be like, wow, that's really bad. But, like, there are all these questions of, like, he might have done something. He probably yelled something. He might have threw something. Like, that's what people's mind does. But you see the video, and you're like, this little boy was terrified, you know? like Yeah, the videos are – I think the videos are important. Yeah, he's terrified. It's I, – I guess the the thing that I don't understand how you make a shift is I think it's it's a question of who you see yourself as in the video, like, what you're scared of being – like, are you scared of being the person behind the gun or are you scared of being the person on the ground? Which is why I think maybe the fact that there's a white person might might change things for some people. But even even still, like there is still, I think, a block for some people to imagine them lying there on the ground, that they're still likely to sympathize with the person who's worried about whether or not this person is going to do something, whether they're really scared, what have you, and not able to necessarily empathize with what it's like to be the person who's being threatened by the cop. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, the police do have, like, a whole separate justice system. Is that You know, we did the first ever database of police union contracts, and across the country, in places like Austin, for instance, the police get access to all of the interrogation materials before they can be interrogated. And it's like, no private citizen has those protections. So I hope that this wakes people up. I, you know, it was interesting to see, like, the National Review and, like, yeah. Reason, like, they were alarmed about this. And it's like, yeah, you should be alarmed, because this would be any of you. And, like, think about all the instances without a camera that happen where the police are just, like, they're afraid, you know? Yep. Dre, what have you learned? I mean, clearly this is a systemic issue. What have you learned about, like, you know, which problems are, are occurring during, you know, the training and preparation of these officers where, you know, if we... If we change that, maybe it would lead to less violence. Like, what are, you know, how do you fix some of the more systemic problems within the police system? Yeah, I think that the one of the root cause systemic problems is that there's no accountability despite everything. So mm. I don't know if you saw that, that story recently of the, there was a, a training going on and it was a white female officer who responded to a white male officer by saying that his like white male privilege was on display and that she got suspended because he said that he was being that that was like a defamatory statement by saying he had white male privilege. Did any of you see that story? No, I didn't see that. That's supposed to be training, right? Training's supposed to be the place where like you talk about privilege and what it looks like. 
he literally got her suspended by saying that like he felt like he was being targeted. And you're like, I don't even know like what a world we're in where that's the case. So I think the training can be a part of it. But like, imagine being in a profession where like, despite the training, all that stuff, no matter what you do, people make an excuse for. And I think that that is actually the root cause thing that I believe that police officers might act differently if any of them ever were held accountable. But like, imagine being able to go to work and like Daniel Shaver got killed. And like, it's just seen as like a, like that off, nothing happened to him. He's chill. Like mm-hmm. he gets to work again he'll go to another police department. Nobody will ever know. And I, so I think that the accountability conversation, like about investigations, about like the laws, about who can be held accountable, like those to me are actually the root cause. I think training, body cameras, all that stuff is good. But if despite everything, you're not going to be held accountable, I don't know how much that matters. You think about in Baltimore, you all read where like that entire division of the police department has just been indicted for like selling drugs, beating up people, all that stuff. It's like, how do you, how do you trust that? It's like you don't, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully this case draws some more attention to this very, very big problem. DeRay, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll talk to you soon. Cool. Awesome. Bye, guys. Keep Thanks, an sir. eye on that, those text messages because there's a picture of a romp coming. <laughs> <laughs> he already hung up. I think he hung up just in time. <laughs> okay, are we in the outro? We are in the outro. <laughs> the outro is here. Anyone have any final thoughts they'd like to share? I shouldn't have done that. That'll just... You know what, John? I don't. <laughs> okay, great. Well, we'll see you all again on, uh, on Thursday. Take care. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Are we allowed to say that? We yeah, are now. Saying it. Happy Hanukkah. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.